All right, you guys, I'm also going to do the scripture reading. So this is from Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. So buckle up. This is a, this is a big one. Um, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron's, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, uh, send your spirit right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing. Lovely words in light of this text. Be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, God made the cosmos in order to share his love and to share his blessings with his creation. That's why he did it. Specifically with humanity. And when she abandoned him and went her own way, causing evil and suffering to just break out everywhere, God did not abandon her. He's a redeeming God. His people would say that his love is unfailing and his mercies are everlasting. And he, in his infinite wisdom and unfailing love, redeemed her through his partnership with a particular people. Because this is how God likes to work, in partnership. In partnership with his creation, he chose a particular people through which he was going to redeem the whole world. And these people, Abraham and Sarah and their descendants, were enslaved for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And I think sometimes when you read big like time frames like that in old books, we don't really think about it. That's like going back to the early 1600s. They were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, and through a process detailed in the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, God saved his people from slavery, brought them out of Egypt, and he was bringing them into a new land. And in that new place, they were to be a light among the nations, God's display bringing hope to the world. God brought them out of the land of Egypt and was bringing them into a new land, but before, like in the middle of that process, between leaving the old land and going to the new, God gave them all these kinds of instructions and laws and commands about a new way of life. And the book of Leviticus falls right in the middle of that. It's the only book of the Bible whose entire contents take place at the base of Mount Sinai, where the people of God camped out for more than a year, 
receiving instruction for the new way of life in front of them. And as we look at Leviticus, if you look at that order of worship, you're going to probably need it um, as we go through some passages of Scripture today uh, on the QR codes or whatever else or in your Bible if you can see it or bring it something like that, you're going to see uh, verses from there, and you can read along. I want you to listen. I know we read it once, but I want you to listen again, and this time, I don't want you to try to, like, I don't want you to zone out on the peculiar details. I actually want you to pay attention to, like, the visceral and specific little notions. Like, there's a lot of blood and, like, fire in this, okay? But the details in particular are important for our lesson tonight. So I'm going to read it again, and I want you to just listen to how specific this is. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The tabernacle is another way to say it. Saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of this tent of meeting. And then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood around the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the the head and the fat on the wood that's on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This too is the word of the Lord. Every single religious cult in the ancient Near East participated in sacrifice offerings in order to worship their gods. Every single one that we know of. And we might think that's wild, okay? But there it is. And, and just take a beat for a minute. Like if you think of all these people sacrificing animals, take a beat just for a minute to realize how many things that they would think are just bonkers in our world. Like how we treat animals. Sacrifices were a fact of life in their time. It's one of the ways that people worshipped their gods. And we're going to talk a lot about sacrifices as a specific conversation. What's the deal with sacrifices in the Bible? We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But for tonight, it's important to know that animal sacrifices and like tabernacles, little places of sacrifices in worship, those were not unique in the ancient world. What is unique, in other words, those aren't the things that make the people of Israel unique. When we read these stories and hear about, man, everybody else was just like, they had just like these lovely pet dogs, and they just, they named all their cows, you know, like that, and the Israelites were sacrificed, you know, everybody was doing this. What makes Israel unique is that they don't have to guess what God wants for them. So I, I want you to look at that passage and just pay attention to the words accepted and the words pleased. These words show up all throughout Leviticus. In every other religious cult, when the droughts came or sickness visited somebody's home, they wondered, are the gods pleased or displeased with us? Are the gods angry with us? And they would offer sacrifices hoping to please their gods, but because they couldn't penetrate the clouds or get behind the mysteries of the universe to know exactly what the gods wanted, they were just guessing and like ramping up their guesses to get the gods on their side. 
And I suspect that when many of us think about laws and commands, like those words even and what they represent, and when we think about that specifically as it's attached to God as modern Westerners, I think we bristle a little at <laughs> laws and commands. Like we probably assume, for example, we probably, many of us assume God might actually be angry with us for how we've been behaving in some way. And that the reason he's giving laws is because he must be upset and people need course correction. But friend, that is not primarily what's happening in the story of the Israelites. When they are camped out at the base of Sinai for a year, they hadn't been doing a bunch of things wrong. They hadn't done anything yet. The laws were setting them up for abundant life. These are a group of people who'd just been liberated from slavery, and they're about to go to a new land. They are freed, but they are unformed. The biblical writers actually use, some of you nerds, this whole semester is for you nerds, you're welcome. The, um, the, the, Bible, the biblical writers actually use the same phrase for the Israelites that they used for the formless creation in Genesis, where the Spirit of God in the first couple of verses is hovering over the waters and created the cosmos with His Word. So too here, the Spirit of God hovers over the Israelites and is creating a new people with His Word. The biblical writers are intentional about this. These are not a people who've been, who's gone astray. This is a new creation story. The laws are not, at this point, overly corrective. They're formative. They are freed, but they're no longer in Egypt, and they've been here since, like, the 1600s. They've been there 400 years. And so what are they going to do? Free now, which probably sounds great, if you read the story, you'll see it's a little more complex than that. What are they going to do for a system of government now? What do they do for commerce? What do they do for societal laws? Who gets to live where and who regulates our conflict? Do we even allow buying of land? Is that a thing we do? I know what the Egyptians did, but we're not Egyptians anymore. We're freed. What do we do? And who are we? It's been 400 years since we got to make our own decisions about this. Think of all the things that you and I rely on every day because of the system of government that we live with. Streetlights. Public utilities, courts of law, school systems, the fact that fuel is in fuel stations. To my knowledge, none of you are growing your own corn and exchanging it for road paving. To my knowledge. I thought somebody raised their hand over here. And I was like, wow. That's, okay. Um, there is just so much infrastructure that comes with cultures. These freed Israelites are now ex-Egyptians. And so what are they going to do for society? We'll see later that God doesn't just want them to be like everyone else in the place they're going to either. And so they're not Egyptians, and they aren't going to be the other people. Who are they, and how will they get there? This question is front and center for them in the middle of this wild place. All these laws and commands that we read are not about God angry with His people. It's God loving His people and giving them what they need to flourish. And I think maybe you can understand you're not living in the ancient Near East. You're not, most of you are not speaking Hebrew. You didn't just get released from slavery in Egypt. You're not living 3,500 years ago. But each one of you have recently left your family of origin. And with it, you have left certain norms and ways of life. The narratives and the heroes and the rules governing what a good life looks like and where, how does everybody fit in that You've left a lot of those things. And so on one hand, you're leaving to some degree or another a lot of things behind in this stage of life. 
but you're not yet out of the college experience in this room. You're actively, right now, like our whole culture is sort of bending on this, and you've mostly, I'm assuming most of you have agreed. During this season, we're deciding things about the rest of our lives, you know? Who you're going to be and how will you participate in an interdependent society. So you, you're leaving actively, to some degree, places that you've been, and you're not yet where you're going to go. And in a sense, we're always there. It's just called the present, okay? But this time of life is like bending all for that, and all these resources are promoting this very peculiar space. And I know that there's a kind of pop culture message that says we shouldn't let anyone tell us what to do. Which is interesting because that's a kind of command, telling us what to do. But I know that that's a common one. It's a common thing. It sounds nice. You shouldn't let anybody tell you what to do. But one of the most common things I hear when I meet with people pastorally throughout the week is that they actually wish that someone would tell them what to do. I don't think just anyone. Someone who loves them, someone they can trust. But it seems to me that so many of us feel a sense of anxiety or despair from having to decide a ton of things about life without any real sense of who we can trust or what we can trust. Not knowing if what we're deciding is actually good in the end. So just from choosing the right major to hanging out with the right people, is this the right college ministry I should be involved in? Should I date or be single? How do I define a good life? And don't you think it would be true? Like if you could imagine someone that, who you do trust, someone who does actually love you and cares about you and doesn't have ulterior motives or like insidious agendas, if they could help you discern big life decisions that you're making right now, point you in the right direction, help you look at the horizon and note markers that are good to aim at and walk toward, surely you would think that it might be one of the most gracious and loving things someone could do at this particular season of your life where you're trying to understand where you've come from and where you're going and people are asking you to decide, decide, decide. It's intense and it's fearful having to guess when your life is on the line. This is, the kind, this is kind of like where the Israelites were. When God is telling them to offer sacrifices in this way, they were the only people in the entire world who did not have to guess. God accepts them and he is pleased with them. Friend, I do not know who you're trying to please. We're all trying to please somebody. But the Israelites have just been freed from slavery. And they've been provided for miraculously by the one who made them. He is the God who led them out of Egypt and bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself because he loves them. And so maybe it shouldn't come as, a, it should come as no surprise that when Leviticus opens up, you can look at the words, it doesn't say, now tell everybody to give me sacrifices. That's not what it says. God says, when people are offering sacrifices... Because apparently they're going to want to give thanks to the one who saved them. And so when God says, when any one of you brings an offering, literally it's just the assumption as the pages of Leviticus open, hey Moses, people are going to be bringing sacrifices to me. And when they do, I don't want them to have to guess. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you don't have to guess either? God is not trying to make you guess what pleases Him. And this should begin to frame 
the way that we think about laws and commands in the Bible differently. In the scriptures, there are a ton of reflections about the law. My favorite is when someone asks Jesus, which of the 614 laws is the most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all of the law and the prophets depend on that. All of them hang on these two commands. As if every other law we can think of only stands up if it's rooted in love. Jesus' own commentary on the law is to say that all of it is about love. Somehow every little aspect of the animal sacrifices and festival rituals and treatment of foreigners and food prescriptions, everything rightly understood is somehow about love. That's my favorite commentary on the law. But because we're going to be spending so much time coming across various kind of cross-cultural, three or four millennia old laws this semester, I want us to kind of come home tonight by looking at a passage about the law from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so that's in your order of worship there from Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was this guy who followed Jesus and wrote like 17 letters of the New Testament, um, if you don't know who that is. And I'm just going to read this, and then I want to talk to you about four things we learned about the law, okay? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. It's something that I, I just assume a lot. I've followed Jesus now for a little over 20 years, 20, 24 years now. And some, if you've just never heard it, like when he says, if you are in Christ, you are heirs according to the promise that God gave to Abraham. When we talk about Abraham, because of Jesus, you're now talking about your family. Whatever God promised to Abraham is promised to you. You should care eminently about what God promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Because when you, Paul here is linking this, he thinks this is the big promise. This is the exciting thing that, oh my gosh, because you are in Christ, he has made you heirs to everything he inherits as a son of God and as a true-born Israelite. It's, it's incredible. Anyway, tangent. Okay, law. Four things I want to point out about the law, and each one of them is gracious. Each one of them is gracious. The first is that the law, when obeyed, promotes flourishing. The law, when it's obeyed, promotes flourishing. When obeyed, it restrains evil and promotes the most amount of flourishing for the most amount of people. It seems unarguable to me that if people did not murder each other, did not commit adultery, did not steal, did not lie, that the world would be a remarkably better place. That if nobody used all their own resources for themselves, it's mine, like Gollum. But set aside some of those resources for the community and for people in need, that the world would be a better place. That more people would flourish and there would be kind of a net negative on the amount of evil in the world. So first, I just want to note this, that the law, when it's obeyed, actually promotes flourishing for the most amount of people, most of the time. Second, the law reveals the heart of God. 
When God gives people laws caring for outsiders and refugees, it reveals some of his heart for outsiders and refugees. When God gives his people specific laws about animals and the land, it reveals some of his heart for his creation. Or at least that our own flourishing is bound up in its flourishing. God's laws about sex and food and time and body and money, these things reveal that there is no aspect of life God is uninterested in. There is no such thing as this is God's and this is mine. There is no such thing in the way God thinks as it's, as it's given to us through the law and the prophets and most fully in the Son, Jesus. He does not look at a night like this and go, cool, here is where we do like my Jesus time. And then the rest of my, then I have school time, and then I have family time, and then I have romantic life time, and then I have introvert time, and then I have whatever time, you know, all these things. The time you spend on TikTok is God's time. There's no area, and that's not to shame you. That's to say everything is spiritual. Everything is a stage upon which God's glory is being displayed and upon which he is redeeming you. Everything. The laws, something, the laws reveal something about God's heart. I remember my first day working at the house, 2005, and I asked my boss at the time if he had any ground rules for the work culture. It was my first day. I was like, hey, do you have any just things, pet peeves, rules I need to know of just so we can get along? And he was like, I don't know. I, I guess if my wife calls, I always get the phone. I was like, okay, that's super cool. What else? And he's like, that's it. I was like, that's it? Like, brother, I'm not from the South. I'm super nervous about this place. What, you know, and he's like, that's it for now. We'll talk about other stuff later, right? But that's it, literally. That's the only thing he told me that day. I, had, I asked him what my job description was. He said, you prayed about it, wanted to come here, you figured it out. You know, like, I mean, it was, it was like, okay, <laughs> figure this out. But listen, that rule revealed something about his heart, doesn't it? He told me how much he cared about his marriage, what he thought about his wife, how he tried to prioritize her over work. When somebody tells you their rules, they're revealing to you their heart. When you look at the laws of God, you're getting a window into the heart of God. That's the second thing. Third, Paul says that the law is a kind of guardian for us, intended to lead us and form us into something else. And in some really basic ways, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. I'm going to explain what I mean. It really should not be surprising to us. But generation after generation get tripped up on this. We think the laws are their own end a lot of times, as if what God cares about is the law. Some of you may know Jesus emphatically saying, my Sabbath, which there's no law in the Old Testament outside of love that has more sort of front and center things than Sabbath. We'll come to that near the end of the semester before Thanksgiving. He says the Sabbath is made for humans, not the other way around. But we keep getting tripped up by this, but let's check it out. Okay, so none of my kids right now are over the age of 13. And, and, none, and one of the rules I have for them is that they're not allowed to sit in the driver's seat while the car's on because they're under 13, right? And, and that's a rule, and I just want to test out some of just what I've said. Okay, does that rule promote flourishing if it's obeyed? I know it's like a no, you're not allowed to do a thing, but I think if it's obeyed, it does mean that my kids are less likely to drive that car into my house or down the cliff of my driveway. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 it increases the likelihood that we're all going to be okay if they don't sit in that seat while the keys are in it. Two, it also reveals a little bit of my heart. Now, you could confuse it. I think you could think, oh, man, he must really care about his car. Or you could think, I, I don't if you've seen it. Um, or you could think that I'm... A little laughter in there, okay? That's interesting. 
I'll wash it sometime, y'all. Or you could think that I'm very particular about who gets to drive. That may or may not be true. Okay, but it's really about my kids. It's about my kids. It's not about the money for the house or a car. It's about my kids. My rule for them not sitting in the front seat is actually about me really wanting them in the front seat at some point. If you think that's confusing, it's just that you're misunderstanding the purpose of the laws. This is true with almost every single rule or law my wife has passed down to our kids as parents. At one point, we didn't want them touching electrical outlets. Now they use them readily. At one point, I didn't want them touching the stove, but now all my kids cook and it's glorious. They, didn't ha- they, they have to go to bed when we tell them to right now, but I want them to be able to self-regulate at some point in life. The hope is that our laws are working together to help them grow into the kind of people who could one day do almost all the things that they're not allowed to do right now. Do you see? That's natural. Like, I think you guys would get that. Like, if I was like, dude, my kids have to go to bed at 8, and they're like 35, and I'm like, it's 8. Are you going to bed? You'd be like, dude, this is a super unhealthy relationship. You know what I mean? But like, but if you saw them at like 11 years old or 8 years old, you'd be like, that actually is probably pretty healthy that you don't just let your kids stay up as long as they want all the time. Do you see what I'm saying? Like you might see a law at one point and realize that the whole purpose of that law isn't that the law itself is the best thing ever and it should last in perpetuity. There's something about that law that's supposed to be forming and shaping and guiding and like a guardian leading into something healthy later down the road. Do you see? If you join the military or check into rehab, these places where people are coming out of old lives and being trained for new ones, the first stages of the military and rehab are full of laws. So many peculiar, very strict rules. And the laws themselves aren't the point. It's that behind those laws, you are being formed into a new kind of person who doesn't need that kind of rigidity later. Like gutter guards in bowling when you're just starting. The hope is that isn't that the guards stay up forever. The hope is that one day those guards could come down. Not so you could throw the ball in the gutter finally, but because you've actually learned how to bowl straight. It's like Paul in the book of Romans saying that if you're loving well, you fulfill the law. Not because you're murdering people and you don't need the law anymore. But because if you love people, you're never murdering anybody, not even in your heart. And if you've gotten there, I don't need to keep telling you you can't murder anymore. Because now you, by nature, thanks be to God, just love. The laws in the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, the laws that we'll read in Leviticus are one of the ways God is forming his people in order to bless the whole world. Do you see? When obeyed, the law promotes flourishing. It reveals the heart of God, and it forms and leads people into something greater. Finally, the law reveals our need for Jesus. Because no matter how many laws God gave or gives, and no matter how many times the people of God start over, they need help. And Paul says that the law reveals our need for Jesus. And there is this sort of mysterious way that when you find your life in Christ and you let him get to work on your behalf, accepting his help, He accomplishes in you all of the things that you could never do when you just knew the rules. It's mysterious, but it is the testimony of the church for the past 2,000 years. Across the globe, 
across socioeconomic status, across genders and sexes, across the world for 2,000 years. This has been the testimony of the church. Tonight, what I'm hoping to do is reframe some of how you perceive laws in the Bible, because we're going to talk a lot about those this semester. The laws given in the Bible aren't just commands that God gives to people because he doesn't like them, and if they obeyed him, then he would like them. The script is totally flipped on that. He made and he saved the Israelites and he gave them the law because he loved them. He wanted to promote flourishing. He wanted them to know his heart. He wanted to form and shape them into people who look like sons and daughters of the God Most High. And he wanted them to know that they need his help and he's going to give it readily. He gave them like this people, this like liberated people who were on the brink of entering a new way of life. He gave them the law because he loved them. And he does the same still. He gives us new ways of life. Not because he doesn't like us, but because he does. He has not placed a calling on your life so that you can prove to him that you're worth loving. He's placed a calling upon your life because he already loves you. The laws of God are full of grace and they are intended for your flourishing, for you to know the heart of God, that you would be formed into the image of his son and that you would know that you're not called to do it alone, but he is with you to the end of the age. This is a new framework for understanding law. The Israelites were sitting there wondering who are they gonna be and how is this new way of life gonna work out and they don't have to guess. God says, this, this is how you do it. I'm accept, I'll accept it, and I'm pleased. Friend, you do not have to guess. That doesn't mean you already know all the answers. I mean, if you start asking the question, what is it that God is pleased with? What does he actually like as I'm trying to figure out who I'm actually going to please in this world? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you don't have to guess with him. We're going to take a minute like we do every single week after the sermon before we come to the Lord's table Um, with just a minute of silence. There's a lot of noise in our world. I know many people from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed probably have, you know, fewer than a couple of minutes where they're not listening, accumulatively, where they're not listening to something or somebody, just data, 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 all the time. And it can be kind of harrowing, but it's actually remarkably um, healing and pretty good to spend a little bit of time in silence. So you can, um, I encourage you to to pray if, if you know how to pray or want to pray. Um, you can just spend the time meditating on a a thought from the text tonight or why God has maybe called you here. Um, I want to give you a prompt just so you're not floundering in silence if you're like, what am I supposed to do at this time? Is there a new way of life God is calling you into right now because he loves you? And if you don't know the answer to that, then maybe say, God, would you show me a new way of life you're calling me into because you love me? Let's take a minute of silence. Father, do not be silent with my friends. Let them hear you, reveal to them the things you're calling them into. Help them to know they don't have to guess. That you accept them and you're pleased with them. That's who you are. It's what we see in the Son. In your Son. In whose name we meet, in whose name we gather, in whose name we come before this table, in whose name we have hope. Not only in this life before death, but even after especially after. 
Jesus' name, amen.